Hello, it's great you can join us on Search for Truth, your Bible study program. And once again, I'm your host, John, and your Bible teacher, Brian, is here with me. This week, Brian's talk is the fourth in this nine-part series about great spiritual movements. Brian looks today at how the Spirit moved in our hearts, which is a reference to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. So if you've a Bible handy, you might find it helpful to follow later on when Brian reads from Romans chapter 9. So let's go to Brian. Thanks, John. God's Holy Spirit required no assistance at our spiritual new birth. And our spiritual new birth, of course, was a time in our life when we first received Jesus, God's Son, as our personal Saviour. Little did we suspect it then, but later the Bible informed us that we'd been chosen from the beginning. God's sovereignty in choosing, together with human responsibility in believing the truth of the Gospel, are found together, side by side, in one verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's verse 13, and it says this, We are bound to give thanks to God all way for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, for that God chose you from the beginning unto salvation in sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Please don't be confused by those who say we can be lost again. Such a misguided view seriously underplays divine sovereignty. In Romans chapter 8, we are given a brief history of our place in God's eternal purposes. Believers are described there as predestined, called, justified and glorified. Note that the last of the four events is still future for the present day believer. But God has caused it to be written in the past tense. He says, we're glorified. What's God saying? Simply this. It's so certain it's as good as already happened. In other words, no one can fall out of that sequence that spans from eternity to eternity. Another way of explaining this deeper Bible teaching is to learn what God wants us to learn from the very next chapter of Romans, which retells part of the story of Jacob from the Old Testament. It does seem that in his early life, Jacob couldn't wait to get his hands on what was his brother's. I just want us to notice how God had told Rebecca in advance the way things were going to be, how her older son would serve his younger brother. And God said this not based on their respective early years' performance, but he decreed this before they were even born. So obviously it was quite independent of anything they'd done or even would do. That didn't come into it. In fact, God specifically wants us to notice this very point. Let the Apostle Paul explain it from Romans chapter 9. He's talking about God's purposes with Israel. From verse 10 he says, Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And in case we should think this is an isolated case, as opposed to something illustrating a divine principle, Paul adds the further example of the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. Now reading from verse 14, still in Romans 9. What shall we say then, he says? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. There's something profound here. We're being allowed some insight into the sovereign workings of God. In this latest Bible example of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, if we were to check back with the book of Exodus and the story of how he refused to give the Israelites their freedom, we'd find that we sometimes read of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and at other times it's said to be God who's hardening his heart, which raises the potential conflict in our minds between divine sovereignty on the one hand and human responsibility on the other. How can we have a real choice if God has actually already chosen what's going to happen? Perhaps we could try an analogy here. Even with our modern scientific understanding, in the natural realm, there are other things we just can't seem to reconcile. Take the nature of light, for example. There's real evidence that light exists as light waves. Some experiments show it to behave in a way comparable to, say, water waves. You may perhaps remember the simple experiment from high school that shows this. But at the same time, there's equally just as good evidence to show that light and its energy come in little packets, more like particles. The only way we can live with that state of affairs in the natural world is by inventing a name for it. An antinomy describes a situation where we have two things which to us are contradictory, and yet there's good evidence for both. In a similar way, the Bible most definitely teaches both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But we tend to shy away from things that are difficult for us to understand, like when it comes to God's involvement in making things happen. And so it's tempting to try to respond to this by saying, oh well, God knows in advance what's going to happen, and so he can tell us in advance what the future holds. But that doesn't fully satisfy the language God uses here. Listen to this inspired commentary as Paul continues, and now at verse 18 of Romans 9. So then he, that's God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing moulded will not say to the moulder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. In any case, when the Bible speaks of God knowing the future, the word means to know with approval. It's not a passive knowledge, nor can it be where God is concerned. The question was asked there, who resists his will? In terms of our salvation and eternal destiny, the Bible would fully support that no more than God wills to be saved will be saved, but equally no fewer than the whosoever wills will be saved. In other words, no fewer than all who willingly come to Christ for salvation will be saved, but equally no more than those whom the Father draws to his Son will be saved, as John chapter 6 and verse 44 says. As with Jacob and his twin, God had decreed what he'd already determined would take place. 
This demonstrates God's sovereign grace. It's not something based on any good found in us as simply foreseen by God. Really, Paul, by the Spirit of God, has anticipated in that passage we read from Romans chapter 9 all the questions that we too want to ask. For example, if it does all come down to the will of God operating in our lives, how come God can still find fault with us? Well, if we stay close to the language of the Bible, and in a subject like this we really have to, then we'd have to say that being of a depraved mind and being dead in sins, we'd no ability of our own to come to Christ for salvation, so it simply had to be God's work. But at the same time, we were held responsible. After all, didn't Christ describe unbelieving Jews of his day as being like chicks that wouldn't come to the mother hen? He was holding them accountable, responsible for their response. We then find an almost irresistible urge to cry out, but that's surely not fair. We have no ability, but God still holds us responsible. And it's good that we feel like this. For again, Paul, by the Spirit, anticipates exactly that kind of reaction, which reassures us that we must be on right lines after all. And this is where Paul parts the debate. For it's ridiculous to think of the mere clay of humanity criticising the divine potter. But does that mean that God is responsible for people going to a lost eternity? Not at all. There can be no injustice with God. All the clay was spoilt. But that wasn't the potter's fault. And he certainly has the right over the clay to do with some spoilt part of it, something which that part deserves no more than the rest. This hard teaching of the Bible does, however, have two very practical impacts on our life. First, it strips away any remaining pride we may still have in thinking we made even the tiniest contribution to our salvation. More importantly, This impressive teaching of God's sovereignty provides us with the last word in complete assurance that once saved, we can never be lost again. So as we finish today, let's not be foolish enough to expect we can fully get our heads round God and his perfect ways, but instead simply bow our hearts in worship, in worship to God for a totally secure salvation which we never deserved in the slightest, which all brings us back To what we said in opening, God's Holy Spirit required no assistance at our spiritual new birth. In his sovereignty, the Spirit of God moved in our hearts to bring conviction about our sinful failings and God's righteous judgment. As a result, we were born spiritually when we acted responsibly and believed in God's Son dying for sinners like us. Born not by our own will, but by God's will, an irresistible movement that was conceived in eternity. Yeah.
And so I, I remind you that our current book, entitled Great Spiritual Movements, contains all the transcripts of the nine talks in this series, and it's available on request. If you'd like a copy, just write in by post or email. I'll be giving you the contact details shortly if you've pen and paper to hand. I must also tell you that the talk you've heard today is also available to download via the internet in audio or text format. But... Uh, to obtain the book, simply ask for Great Spiritual Movements, and you can do this by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. And did you know by looking up churchesofgod.info forward stroke media, you'll find our church's main website where you can download some actual programmes and the transcripts, as well as accessing other helpful material and finding out all about us. So once again, many thanks for the pleasure of your company. We're delighted that you take such a great interest in these Bible talks. And I hope you'll join us next week to hear about how the Spirit moves Christians toward unity, as referred to in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Until then, it's very best wishes from our Bible teacher, Brian, our producer, David, our singers and me, John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you. <laughs>